introduce you to the great musicians and music businesses and organizations of Wisconsin. Every week, Wisconsin Music Podcast will be bringing you great information on what's happening in the Wisconsin music world. For our music-loving listeners, we'll bring you music that you haven't even heard of yet from unique and talented artists and hear about their journey so far. You'll either hear live performances of their songs or songs from their selected discography. For our musicians out there wondering what they can do to further their recognition, we'll be calling upon Wisconsin music businesses and organizations to enlighten you on what they're doing to help further your music journey. And now, here's your host, Zach. Thanks, Dean. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Wisconsin Music Podcast. This week, we have Professor Pinkerton's Irrelevant Orchestra. And in the bio, it says, Professor Pinkerton's Irrelevant Orchestra maintains an impressive balancing act between being authentic to traditional and being fiercely in the moment. Their interpretation of early jazz, blues, and American roots music is a startling era of timelessness that is as refreshing as it is compelling and they add every act you can imagine and some you can't the podcast is sponsored by diamond dave photography the photography that supports local music in wisconsin it is ready to work with your band or any solo artist on your next promo pictures or band show to contact diamond dave and see previous work check out diamond dave photography on facebook and instagram wisconsin music podcast is also brought to you by ztf studio ZTF Studio Recording and Mixing Services, specializing in singles, demos, EPs, and LP projects for the last 20 years in southeastern Wisconsin, doing jazz, rock, funk, country, indie, and more. For more information, check out ztfstudio.com. Once again, that's ztfstudio.com. Welcome to Wisconsin Music Podcast. This week we have Professor Pinkerton. And he is a multi-entertainer, a musician, and um, we're going to get right into the conversation and welcome to the Wisconsin Music Podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure uh, being out, you know, uh, all the reschedules aside, you know. Yeah. uh... Let's kind of like start with your origin story, Um, where you grew up, were you part of a musical family, did you start in like school band or was this something um, outside of that? Just kind of give us your kind of origin story. Yeah, for sure. Um. When I was younger, I did a considerable amount of uh, traveling, uh, hitchhiking, hopping trains, uh, doing tours with, uh, you know, um, basement show, punk rock bands, things like this. Um, self-taught as a musician, um, I do read and write and, you know, work on arrangements and things like this, but uh, at a significantly uh, slower pace than everyone else and uh that I typically work with because most of them have music degrees. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I uh, started out doing a lot of guerrilla theater, said sort of basement shows, uh, you know, street performance, things like this. Um, I sort of cut my teeth that way. Uh, I grew up sort of all around Wisconsin. My family moved like every year, every other year. So oh, wow. I lived... Uh, Lived in between some cornfields and the suburbs and the inner city, uh, but mostly, mostly in southeastern Wisconsin, uh, with a few little cameos in other states. Okay. Did you um, come from a musical family, or are you like the the black sheep, so to speak? In my immediate family, uh, I'm the only one who really pursued music in any sort of serious degree. Uh, 
uh, I actually had to leave the house if I wanted to practice because, uh, uh, you know, mom didn't want to put up with the noise or whatever. Um, so, you know, go practice in the park, et cetera, et cetera, which in turn was actually uh, a benefit because it made it so I wasn't particularly shy about playing in public. Uh, you know, wasn't too self-conscious of my skill level. I uh, just accepted it for what it was. And uh, that became very, very useful when I was in a position that uh, how I was uh, feeding myself was uh, being confident enough to engage with people as a street performer. So you play guitar, you sing, play banjo. Is there any other instruments that you are tinkering with? I, my whole house is like a musical instrument museum. Uh, I sometimes will joke that uh, I don't play harp or harmonica, but at least of uh passing proficiency in just about everything else. Um, but as far as like when performing, you know, it's going to be, yeah, like piano, uh, you know, guitar, banjo, uh, chordal instruments. So I don't have a, a huge emphasis on doing lead uh, work, at least for someone who plays like jazz and blues or whatever, it's kind of uh, assumed that there's a lot of single note improvisation and, I, I can hold my own, but it's just not, you know, a particular area of specialty and more of a, a front person, show person sort of role traditionally. Okay. Traditionally. And so why don't we um, kind of give a little timeline here of like, like the first kind of groups you started playing in that led you up to Professor Pinkerton and the Irrelevant Orchestra? Yeah. So started out, I said, early on playing with friends. And it just happened to be that there is uh, most of my friends were playing in like, you know, basement punk and hardcore and sort of fringe subgenres. Um, and I enjoyed that. But uh, I always had more of a fascination with uh, acoustic instruments. And um, the sort of uh, light bulb moment for me is that a lot of these like socially conscious you know, punk bands, the lyrics are supposed to be really important, but you never could hear them because, you know, it wasn't like it didn't have like the nakedness of like, you know, like a folk performer or something like it's a story. You can hear it like the 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 vocals are very upfront and in a way that are accessible. You don't need a lyric sheet to like, you know, unravel the enigma. Um, so then when I was doing out doing street performance stuff like this, um, when I settled a little more back in Milwaukee, uh, being a father, started uh, doing circus shows with my friends, which was under the, the Dead Man's Carnival moniker. And we decided that uh, live music was going to be uh, a cornerstone of that show. And I was just uh, the one who had the most drive to sort of organize that. So it ended up being the responsibilities that I bottom lined. And that's uh, where the, the Professor Pinkerton's Irrelevant Orchestra sort of was born out of as we were uh, filled the function of being the house band for this live music circus show, uh, Dead Man's Carnival, which I still run, although uh, we've been trying to focus a little more on music as of late. It's uh, logistically less complicated, uh, you know, than getting a 30-person circus show dragged around. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of uh, the skinny and narrow of it is... Uh, sort of learned on the job, as it were, when uh, we first started, uh, I really had zero proficiency at like reading or writing or making arrangements or things like this. But uh, the um, everyone else, having gone through the process of learning the skills in music school, it was just the fastest point between A and B. 
was for me to just learn to communicate in their preferred language as opposed to them trying to cobble together uh, our sort of like garage rock, punk rock way of doing things prior. But it's still still a mix of both because uh, some of our ideas, like the behind the scenes, the nuts and bolts, the gears still borrow a lot from, uh, we'll say, folk traditions that aren't quite so intellectualized. Can you explain a little bit on that? Well, you know, in early American roots music, which is where a lot of the bedrock of where we're coming from it was uh music that you you listened to it was uh what a lot of people are doing now is emulating the movements of something that came up more organically it wasn't quite a structured thing it was something that evolved on its own little by little and uh a lot of the stuff that i'm interested in came from a more grassroots rural sort of background so it's um there wasn't uh the names of the music, the notation systems came later is kind of, I guess, uh, right. one way to, one way to look at it. So we still try to capture some of that spirit where it's like, it's nice to be able to write something down, but because of the improvisational nature of the music, you really just have to be in the moment and listening and being aware. So it's like, eventually you have to step away from some of the more formal notation system because it's a, it's a crutch that there's a reason they call it a fake book. We'll put it that way. Right. Yeah. I, I totally understand. I'm, I actually have my degree in music education, so I yeah, know, yeah. yeah. So I know where you're, you're coming from. So the style that of music that you guys play, it reminds me a lot of like second line, new Orleans, you know, um, the old preservation hall kind of jazz kind of stuff. Certainly. Yeah. And then definitely, without a doubt, um, this most recent record, which I mean, I, 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 we haven't put out a record in like a decade. So whatever the 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 first record under the relevant orchestra banner, the original concept was actually to be doing all public domain songs. We made uh, a few exceptions uh, and did a few songs that are just slightly more modern than that. So it does have a lot of this. Uh, you know, traditional American roots, uh, New Orleans vibe to it. Uh, and in fact, a number of the guest musicians we had sitting in, uh, you know, are uh, New Orleans natives. So okay. uh, brings a little bit of uh, the real deal in that sense. And, and I lived, uh, maybe not lived is not the right way to put it. Uh, I, had, I did a number of extended stays in New Orleans performing on the streets. So it's uh definitely something that's like rattling around in my head somewhere yeah i would definitely love to someday go and visit new orleans that's one place i haven't been able to get to yet but i'm looking forward to it hopefully sooner than later oh yeah i would highly recommend it it's uh great food great you know uh great music it's uh it's really uh an incredibly one-of-a-kind sort of spot you know so everyone around the country wants to sort of like take a, a little piece of it there's a lot of uh derivative sort of work including this record you know heavily right. based on uh the uh the culture that was allowed to grow there that uh you know would have gotten shut down sooner than it uh was allowed to develop to the degree it did uh, elsewhere perhaps speaking of performing and playing out before covid what were like some of the places that you would perform at because obviously the music that you're playing isn't it's it's a very niche entertainment it's not you know the typical 
bar band, you know, rock, punk, whatever. It's, you know, it's, yeah, little, yeah. it's so where are you, where do you guys, before COVID, where were you guys performing? We had a, you know, uh, a healthy calendar. Um, I, I totally agree the the music definitely is uh, a niche in some ways, but it's also like an almost universally appreciated niche. So mm-hmm. it's like, in some ways we had things a lot easier than say like, an original pop punk band or a metal band or something because uh, a, a larger market than you'd think for the early American roots music, even, you know, that we're picking, you know, some more obscure cuts here and there, but yeah, we, uh, we had a regular residency at the Miramar with the circus show. So okay. we did the first Fridays every month for years and years. And then we also had a residency at a shaker cigar bar doing a, a monthly engagement on the third Thursday of each month. And then, ended up being the first Thursday of each month uh, for a number of years as well. And yeah, just kind of all over. We had uh, a regular spot uh, organizing uh, parades for Summerfest, you know, you know, whatever, a regular mm-hmm. headlining spot at Bayview Bash. There's kind of, uh, but a lot of, uh, a lot of private hire work um, and not like, you know, weddings or things like this, but, you know, like backyard barbecues, uh, parades, things like this. Yeah, I think the first thing that kind of caught my eye was when I I don't remember exactly how I I found you on the web, but it was like some kind of a wagon or something where it was just you guys were playing music and you were being kind of like it was during the winter. It was like a, playing Christmas songs and everything like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that was uh, I put together this initiative uh, called Professor Pinkerton's Christmas Caravan. And uh, it was a sort of a community service endeavor. We did have a number of uh, private hire engagements that came out of it, but uh, you know, it's just uh, the pandemic has been devastating to a lot of people. And I just wanted to uh, use my specialized skills and resources to kind of give something back to the community and uh, add some whimsy and hope and things like this. so yeah, for the entire month of December, every day that we had personnel and weather allowed, we went out and played all over the city for a couple hours here or there, uh, intentionally sort of uh, mysteriously about it, you know, which just, I had it fixed in my head that uh, I thought it was more magical for people to just like randomly interact with it instead of it being like a destination that was like on the uh, agenda for the day or whatever. I wanted uh, something about the, uh, the anticipation of something like Santa Claus, where it's like you want it to be mostly build up. So if there's someone out there who's been waiting to run into it, how much more of a, a meaningful interaction it would be when they're turning the corner coming out of the grocery store or whatever. And, uh, you know, they get a sort of drop everything and uh, have something uh, magical, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Very cool. Yeah, because you wouldn't expect that. And all of a sudden there goes you and the band going down the road playing Christmas tunes. So that's that's pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I mean, as much fun as we had, I mean, playing on an outdoor wagon for hours during a Wisconsin winter is about as much fun as it sounds like it would be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but tuning was not easy for the keeping no, tune. And being somewhat of a, a Puritan when I can, it's like we're using like an acoustic piano. And, you know, like like I said, I have a, a real uh, affinity towards true acoustic instruments or whatever. I mean, yeah. uh, 
not to say that I'm not also fascinated with electronic music and its capabilities. It's just, uh, I don't know, something uh, visceral and primal about, you know, whatever the, uh, and childlike as well of just like playing with sound. Right, right. I hear you. I played in a, in a all almost all acoustic band too, and we played outside one, one time, and it was like probably like thirty or forty degrees out, and I just couldn't stay in tune because it was just too cold. Yeah, you know. And I, yeah. see, I see you got the berry in the back. Is uh, reed your primary sort of emphasis? Yeah, saxophone is my main instrument. That's what I studied under when I was going right. through uh, middle school, high school, and college. So yeah, yeah, it's great. I, I'm a big fan. I uh, I've never been. I've tried my hand at saxophone a little, but uh, when it comes to reed stuff, I, I like clarinet a lot more. The the tighter embouchure just comes more naturally. It's actually difficult for me to like loosen my jaw enough to do saxophone after I got used to it. So I squeak a lot. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. And for me, the clarinet, I mean, it's a great bass clarinet for me would be a, a cool instrument for me to pick up. I want to do that eventually, but open hold um, instruments are really hard for me to play. So that's why I kind of mm-hmm. had to veer away from the clarinet and stick more with a closed hole instrument like the saxophone. Gotcha. Yeah, I got, um, it seems like it's going to be a wall hanger, but I did get a bass clarinet recently. Uh, and like the last dredges of stuff coming out of Casio music, uh, it was like from their repair room or whatever, yeah. but you know, it's, Stuff like bass sax, bass clarinet, it's like they sound really cool, but it's like very hard to justify the purchase because, you know, even if you gig on it full time, you'll never really actually pay it back. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like or not not even to mention, like if you're like a orchestral tuba player and you're spending five figures on your instrument, it's uh, right. You know, it makes the harmonica player seem like the smartest guy in the band. (laughs) That or the tambourine person. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about venues, I know you you mentioned where you guys have been performing, but um, do you have some insight into like the positives and negatives of the local scene that you want to bring up? Well, for sure. Um, I have a, a strong love for Milwaukee. I more or less, for the most part, grew up here. You know, here and the satellite cities in southeastern Wisconsin, and uh, you know, raised my daughter here and. So I, I have a uh, belief in the potential of the city, but as someone who's traveled a lot, I see other mid-sized U.S. cities like St. Louis or Minneapolis or Kansas City or Detroit, and they just have such more thriving, interesting art scenes. And uh, I know Milwaukee really likes to bill itself as the city of festivals, but the vast majority of opportunities are for like mediocre top 40 cover bands and you know i mean don't get me wrong there's a time and place for it and as someone who focuses a lot of my time on playing early american roots music i'm not a puritan when it comes to like you have to play all original material or whatever i i actually think uh you know there's something nice about the community building of playing music that's accessible and familiar but at the same time um There just seems to be a a culture that uh, doesn't want to pay it forward into having like its own fingerprint or its own kind of thing. What do you think 
we could do as a community to kind of change that? Well, that's a, that's a good question. I think you got the right idea that it's not a one person solution. It's not the venues. It's not the musicians. It's not the fan base. It's, it's kind of com- a combination of, uh, I may not be the best person to speak on this because a lot of my emphasis is on uh, exploring uh, antiquated genres. But even with that, um, I, I think a, a big part of it is, uh, you know, uh, this cliche it is, it's, it's showing up. It's, uh, you know, uh, engaging the community in a sort of consistent manner because uh, there's a stone soup-like aspect to building a meaningful art scene. So, I mean, that's, uh, that, that's a part of it. But uh, to be entirely honest, I think the one sort of X factor in is this, if you were to compare us to someplace like Minneapolis or St. Louis or some of these other places I mentioned, there's considerably more uh, philanthropic money. Like, I, I don't remember where I read it at one point, but they're saying something like per capita, um, you know, and these are not exact numbers, but just general, the general ratio is saying like, oh, per capita, they spend $16 per person on the arts in Minnesota or Minneapolis. And it was like, less than a dollar in Milwaukee. Right, so it's right. like, and so I, th- I think a big part of it is there are some really good things happening. Um, you know, there's a lot of money that goes towards the symphony and Milwaukee has a, uh, you know, a, for the size of city we come from a pretty renowned symphony. And I know we're trying to put a lot of investment in that. Um, you know, there's a, not a lot of engagement on that level, though. So it's kind of a, a weird trade-off. Although uh, I am hopeful with the uh, the new theater they uh, they've built out. I think yeah. it's really I think it's got a lot of potential, and they're doing what they can to uh, do enough things to keep it relevant. Like, oh, we're going to do the Harry Potter like music today. Or we're going to do this video game music, or just anything to captivate more of a youth uh, engagement. But yeah. uh, but I don't know. I, I think there's uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's not uh, <laughs> it, it's a it's a hard thing to pontificate upon because it's yeah. uh, there's, there's just a lot of factors. Um, and particularly my area of expertise is in like more of an entrepreneurial grassroots. Just I'm not trying to cater to like well, I don't run a nonprofit or whatever. So it's kind of a different ballpark than where I work. I have a very you just if you build it, they will come background, you know, starting with house shows and moving up to producing, you know, local circus shows and, you know, these sort of things. And uh, I, I'm not, I'm perfectly happy being in a niche market. Uh, I have had a number of opportunities. We've played like larger venues, larger festivals, and uh, it doesn't do quite as much for me. I like, uh, I like being able to make eye contact with everyone in the audience. So, you know, like uh, a couple hundred person capacity, maybe a thousand person capacity is probably about as big of a crowd as I actually still enjoy performing for. Okay. Um, you know, and I tend to like theater shows for that reason, because it's, uh, people go there with an intent, you know, they, uh, they're there on purpose and they want to be a part of something as opposed to say, I don't know, uh, doing a bar show. A lot of people are happy there's music, but they're not really there to engage with the music. They're there to socialize, they're there to drink. And 
that has its uh it's in its time and place as well but uh i've been sort of spoiled producing circus shows where uh you know everyone's in the same place and the same mindset at the same time and that's uh a very good feeling so it feels like anything less than that is sort of like uh a compromise uh at this point so basically you enjoy performing for a captive audience yeah and i think most people do right. and and i think most audience members as well like to be engaged you know they want to be a part of something that makes them want to pay attention you know and so so in the, in that sense uh even when we do just band shows, we do a lot of Spike Jones-esque uh, shenanigans to uh, to shake it up a little, you know. Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, we get plenty of opportunities where hire people hire us and they want us to be like wallpaper, but uh, being able to do a job and uh, really th- feeling like you're thriving at it are very different. Yeah, I hear you. Let's kind of move on to you mentioned earlier that you have an album that you did about. 10 years ago, are you in the process of maybe getting another album out anytime soon? Or is that kind of down the line? Yeah, no, no. We, so yeah, we did. We re- released a record that uh, the vinyl actually was delivered to my house on the day the pandemic was announced. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, we put out uh, a record called Antiquated at Best. And it's, uh, yeah, like a, a big emphasis on early American roots music, traditional jazz and blues and folk it was a really fun project. It was uh, a sort of hidden gem in Milwaukee's music scene in the niche market where uh, in Racine every year, there's a bunch of like 78 record collectors who get together and do a Bix Beiderbecke festival. And they bring in some really world-class talent to perform at this, but it's uh, a big sort of uh, retirement home age record collector demographic and then a bunch of like really cool vintage, you know, swing dance sort of Chicago scene. And that's like the only people who show up, but it's like, you know, like world famous musicians, just like in this like hotel lobby as this weekend festival. And uh, so I use that as sort of an opportunity to uh, get some hired guns and pull in some favors from friends that were from uh, out of town. So we, the Monday after the festival was done, we went into the studio at, you know, whatever, like eight, nine in the morning, whatever, and just did uh, all live straight to tape, no rehearsal, just did the whole record, like pretty much said, I'm going to call the tunes as we go, depending on how I feel. I'll give you a quick rundown of the arrangement. If we can't get it in three takes, we move to the next one. Cool. And where did you record this at? That was uh, at uh, National Studios with uh, Danny Zalanki. Okay, yeah, I've I've talked with him before, and I've actually recorded there uh, like five or six years ago, doing some Barry Sachs parts, actually. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and as if you want to do like the vintage equipment, the like, you know, uh, the 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 analog stuff. I mean, he really is the go-to guy in town, if not one of the go-to guys in the Midwest. he uh, has done a lot of stuff over the years, but he has uh, a special uh, touch for that sort of stuff, you know? Yeah. yeah, I actually ran an analog studio myself back in the early 2000s. I had like the two inch 16 track machine and the old analog console, and, um, you know, a lot of, uh, and I have a, still have a, an old uh, two inch, or not two inch, um, half track um, 
mixed down deck as well that I kept, but I, I got rid of the other stuff. But yeah, I, I love the analog sound. I just love the way the, the tape can saturate it without it sounding, you know, distorted. The un the not nice sounding distortion, but the really yeah. you know, the upper harmonics, third harmonic kind of stuff going on. Well, and for me, a part of the reason we didn't record more is because I had a very perfect perfectionist sort of streak to it. And obviously not perfectionist when it comes to the performance, because like I said, I'm very like laid back about that. We get together, you got talented musicians in the room leaving the door open for like magic to happen. Yeah. But very particular about um, the sound I was shooting for the, the means of capturing that sound. Um, really it was, it's very hard to find uh, an engineer who was open-minded about these sort of things to go, well, why would you do that? Those old records like don't have as much like dynamic fidelity as what we could do or, you know, <laughs> like, and so to me, it was like, well, if I can't do it the way I want to, I'd rather just not do it at all. Yeah. And that may not be the best attitude, but, you know, I, I held off and I was very, very happy with the results. Uh, some, you know, some of the vocal performances I know I could have done better on. But like I said, it was like early in the morning, a very stressful endeavor, you know, just all in all, uh, I'm very pleased with it. But, uh, you know, I, I think that is how it goes when it comes to recordings, too, particularly if you don't record a lot is you'll think everything sounds great except your part, you know? Right. Yep. I know exactly how that feels for sure. And, and I've always suffered a lot from like red light syndrome. I uh, I perform a lot better before you, know, you hit the record button. It's just maybe it's due to... Uh, you know, the stress of uh, not doing it off enough to feel like it's in my realm. Uh, but but some of it's um, being particular about a sound and finding just the right engineer that you trust, um, that, you know, they, they're shooting for the same target. You know, how close you get is fine, but uh, just knowing that you're at least kind of hoping for the same end product is, uh, for me, a really important thing. Yeah. And yeah. I thought Danny, Danny and me were really great for that. I mean, uh, we still regularly, you know, talk on the phone for, you know, an hour or two, just uh, hopping from topic to topic and uh, never seeming to find an end of uh, overlap of similar interests. Very cool. Yeah. Um, he's definitely, yeah, I've talked to him before, actually recently over the last month or so, because I have a, a band that I'm helping produce. We are thinking about going to his studio and yeah, talking to him is, is he's definitely a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. And I will say this. Um, he doesn't pull punches. He yeah. does what he does. And he's got no bones of like, he's like, if you were to do a comparison of like a tattoo artist, he doesn't do flash art. He doesn't like he does what he does. And if you like what he does, like, he's a good person to record with, but he doesn't, you know, it's just, uh, and that is kind of my experience. And I just got really lucky that we are very much on the same page. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was a fun enough experience that I've been doing a lot more like multi-tracking, like rough tracks at home to sort of like build up my skills to the next project that we work on. I feel like I have, you know, more of a command of the uh, the experience and the process, you know. Let's talk about some of the songs that you did do recently. The one, the album you talked about that got dropped off right around when COVID hit. Uh, we could put yeah. some, some of those songs on the podcast if you'd like for the the listeners to hear. Oh, that'd be fantastic. 
So, yeah, as I said, it was uh, the original idea was to go in and do all public domain songs, um, which is not for any particular reason. I mean, in some ways, it's like to decomplicate it. But I have a, a very deep rooted fascination with the the earliest recordings and things like this, you know, like wax cylinders and, you know, like the sort of evolution of turn of the century technology and the way it uh, was interwoven in a tapestry of uh, sort of uh, defining uh, American musical genres and culture, which I've often said is uh, our most significant export, uh, you know, is our, our, you know, our, our cultural uh, sort of influence on shaping the, the world. And a lot of the earliest recording technology being developed in the States, um, you know, it's just, there's a, an intersection of a lot of interesting subjects. So it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a hodgepodge of like, tunes that people may have heard before, like some of the more like jazz standards, like the Sheik of Araby or After You've Gone, um, Taint Nobody's Business If You Do, uh, things like this that I think are like slightly more accessible. And then some real deep digs, like uh, a song called Winnie the Wailer, which, you know, uh, not a lot of people have done or there's a, a blind Willie McTell tune we did that seems to be getting a lot of pop positive reception called lay some flowers on my grave. Um, so yeah, it's for me, it was, uh, you know, a, a combination of these two things, like being an entry point where people don't feel uh, it's completely uh, obscure, but still throwing a few of those in where it's tunes that, outside of the original artist, I couldn't find anyone else who had ever recorded some of these songs. Why don't you pick a, like three songs that you would like to put on the podcast? We'll put two in during the interview. I'll interlace it in there and then we'll use another one for like the play out. Yeah. Sounds great. Uh, yeah. I think uh, we've been getting a good chunk of radio play on like radio Milwaukee, MSOE stuff like this for uh, one of the tracks called Shorty's gotta go. Or uh, who said Shorty wasn't coming back? I'm sorry, uh, is the actual name of the song. So I can bounce you that one. There was a guy about 40. His name was Shorty. The type of guy who used to ramble around. Together decided it was better They ran Shorty out of town Shorty had to go Let me tell you how Shorty had to go The fellas got together decided it was better That Shorty had to go They got together and they took a vote And that was all for Shorty wrote Satisfaction, they called right into action and ran for Shorty out of town. Shorty had to go. Let me tell you about Shorty had to go. They wanted to get to action, they wanted satisfaction, and Shorty. Take him down 
out loud and said, I'll be back. some flowers on my grave most of the feedback i've gotten that's been a crowd favorite an existential little ditty coming at you from blind willie mctell oh yeah we're gonna keep that talking on the take that's what you get why don't you lay some flowers on my grave More likely poor 
There's one thing I ask of you So simple for you to do To lay some flowers on my green Wrapping this up, I only have a few more questions. One of the things I asked about is work-life balance. Are you able to be able to do that pretty well? Or are you or are you having struggles like some people do? I, I definitely struggle with it. I've gotten better. Um, I'm one of the, the the few very lucky people who makes a full time living doing performing. So it's uh, it's a grind to me. It's uh, balancing out the uh, the fun stuff with the not fun stuff because most of running a band is sending emails and setting up recordings, you know, setting up rehearsals and like literally physically putting together books and things like this and uh, a lot of moving equipment and a lot of repairing and upkeeping equipment. And uh, not a whole lot actual playing, <laughs> but I also said I uh, I have uh, I have three kids. Uh, one of them lives in Madison full time. Well, lives in Burlington now, but grew up in Madison with their mom. But uh, I have a 15 year old daughter who uh, lives with me, and I have a newborn in the house. So in that sense, um, I'm excited to get a second swing at uh, the sort of uh, home versus work balance because. Uh, my uh, my wife is uh, going to going back into finishing law school starting in August, so I'm going to be doing the the primary child rearing while she's at school. So it's uh, both of us are signing up for quite a workload. Uh, you know, having uh, I have uh, the affliction of uh, pretty bad ADD in that sense, where I can be very flighty or very hyper focused. So uh, 
you know, these sort of balances uh, did not come naturally. It was a very slow growing process, figuring out how to work with uh, all the resources I had. I'm very fortunate to have a number of uh, people involved in the show, whether the circus acts, the musicians, the kind of general helpers who have uh, an incredible amount of tolerance to put up with my nonsense and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the chaos that comes with these sort of shows. But uh, learning how to delegate, learning how to work through people has been a very arduous uphill battle that uh, I still can't say I'm great at, but I'm a uh, light years ahead than I was, uh, you know, a decade ago when I started. Well, that's, that's good. I mean, and that kind of the purpose of life is just to keep growing and getting better at what we're trying to accomplish. Right. It's certainly. And, uh, you know, it's the ironic thing, as I said, I work full time doing entertainment, but, uh, I'm not very business pragmatic. Like, I mean, I know how to get stuff done or whatever, but my priorities are like in making meaningful connections with people. So, I'm turning down good work because I don't find it to be rewarding. You know, other people are scrambling to find work and I'm trying to like run away from it. So I can spend more time <laughs> on my passion projects. Right. Right. Cause it's like, I didn't sign up to be like a wedding or a corporate like wallpaper, you know, show like uh, if we have a fan who wants us to come out to that sort of event, I'm always happy to fulfill the engagement, but, um, you know, it's just, we didn't sign up for that. So to me, there needs to be a balance of, uh, I always uh, compare it to uh, in the early days of Google, apparently they had this sort of 80-20 platform where they would give their engineers one day of the week to do whatever they want on the Google paycheck. And most of their most profitable, successful ideas came out of that 20% free time instead of the 80% like hustling grind. Yeah. So I, I would, I don't know if it's exactly like an 80, 20 balance with me, but this idea of being very firm that a certain allotment of the time and resources is on like the big things, the reputation makers, the impossible dreams, because it's like, otherwise you get stuck treading water and you never get it out good on your bucket list of things that you you know, would be really excited to do because there's always a hundred reasons that it's not practical, you know? Yeah. How do you get all the stuff together? Where do you raise the money? You know, how do you divide out all the tasks from uh, doing a set design to doing the musical arrangements to costumes to booking to social media? It's like 20 people's full-time job. And we work with a lot of freelance musicians, people who... um being in the Midwest market, if you want to make a living doing music, like very few people have the benefit of being in one band. You have to play in numerous groups. You're doing right. pit orchestra work. You're you're teaching on the side. You're doing all these different things that are music industry related and spending very little time doing the thing that really gets you excited and makes you feel alive. You know, like very few people get to be like in the Rolling Stones and that's your thing is all you do is play in the <laughs> right. Rolling Stones. Right. And I honestly, even they don't get to do whatever they want because they probably want to write new songs. But after you've written as many albums as they have, you don't get to write new songs anymore because people are going to be disappointed because <laughs> you didn't play their favorite song. Yeah, because their library is so huge now. And that's one of one of my favorite artists has always been Tom Waits. And uh, he's had similar sentiments where he says part of the reason he doesn't tour anymore is because the expectation he's done such an eclectic 
array of things over the years, there's no, like, no matter what, people are going to walk away sad because, like, there's going to be some weird instrument or some obscure song that he didn't play. And you couldn't, I mean, you could do a weekend festival and you couldn't play his whole catalog. He's written over a thousand songs. Like, right, it's right. not possible, let alone the idea of imagine carrying all that weird stuff out, like, you know, all the, like, you know, weird sound effects and marimbas and timpanis and, yeah. you know, like it's just feasibly, uh, it's just not very practical, but, uh, now my, my favorite ideas often aren't practical and I'm just fortunate that, uh, my friends like me enough that they'll tolerate it. <laughs> it's always good. That's always good. For the most part, they drew the line at two timpanis. I, I tried to get more timpanis and they're like, I'm not moving any more timpanis up the stairs. You get you get one timpani. At least you're not having two B3 players. No kidding. No kidding. The last question I kind of ask is your playlist. Are there any artists that you're listening to that you feel might deserve some more recognition that unfortunately are not getting the recognition that maybe they should be getting? Yeah. Um, as I said, I do write a lot of original music as well, particularly for the circus show. It's just never really makes it to record. Um but uh, one of the things I really have, uh, I feel like a, uh, a sworn duty to push is that uh, there's a lot of people who play in the genres of early American roots music who are continuing to expand on that catalog, who primarily are writing original music that is in these sort of genres that, you know, people wouldn't necessarily think are like living, breathing uh, scenes, but they are. Um, so in that sense, uh, some of my favorite artists who are writing original music are uh, uh, Pokey Lafarge, uh, originally from St. Louis, although he lives in L.A. now. He's uh, a great, great artist from uh, Australia named C.W. Stone King, um, originally from uh, Oklahoma, but living in Nashville. Uh, there's uh, J.D. McPherson. Uh, he does extraordinarily good music. Um, in fact, some of it we played uh, on the Christmas Caravan because he did uh, one of the coolest rock and roll Christmas records I've ever heard called Socks. Hmm. And it's, uh, you know, it's uh, it's all original music, all very, very seeped in vintage genres and vintage styles, but uh, at, at its core, just a fantastic rock and roll record. I'll have to check that out. Um, so yeah, that's some of my top of the list. Although, uh, we currently are working on uh, a new touring circus show that uses primarily mid uh, mid uh, mid eighteenth century uh, Russian Romantic classical music. Oh, okay. So I'm working on a lot of arrangements for like you know Rachmaninoff, you know Tchaikovsky, you know Shostakovich, things like this. Um, and uh, we're approaching it as a cartoon jazz band. So it's hmm. classical music, but with instrumentation and sort of the an approach that is uh, not very strictly classical. Uh, it just happens to be the theme of the, the piece. But uh, so it's, it's a new new adventure for me. I'm not classically trained. So it's a. Uh, very fun and challenging. Uh, we're working a lot in uh, Audacity and Muse score, trying to uh, ante up in my uh, technological tool sets. Excellent. Very cool. Well, 
thank you so much for being on the Wisconsin Music Podcast. It was a lot of cool information that you uh, gave the listeners. And when COVID finally gets us to the point where we can actually go out and see you know live music more than we've been able to over the last year year plus, um, definitely want to check you guys out um do you think you're going to be going back to the miramar or are you kind of thinking of a different direction oh i'm sure we will do stuff at the miramar we still have a good working relationship with them um because we have the mobile stage and a lot of theaters aren't up and doing stuff we're planning on spending a lot of the spring and the summer trying to do uh kind of a throwback to the uh the golden age of the circus and try to do a bunch of uh you know, outdoor entertainment shows. It's just trying to find a way to cover the bottom line so everyone can uh, walk away with a sort of paycheck they deserve because right. this sort of guerrilla performance, you know, there's not a gate fee. There's not necessarily a sponsorship, you know, it's figuring out these sort of things, but uh, that's so kind of what we have on the docket is uh, similar to the Christmas caravan, a lot of uh, unexpected, whimsical outdoor entertainment. So where do you guys usually, what roads, is it mostly like downtown Milwaukee or? Oh, no, it's all over. We, we made a point of getting all over. I mean, we, uh, because of the way the caravan is with all the like lighting equipment, the sound equipment and this and that, I don't think it's freeway worthy. So we haven't really gone to any of the satellite cities in a huge way. Um, we are in dialogue with uh, Jesse Daly, who runs the Chiel up in Fiendsville. Um, when we're doing the Christmas Caravan, he made a, a really generous donation, and I wanted to get up there and do a performance for him, but weather just didn't let it happen with the timeline. Yeah. So uh, our first big thing is to try to get up there and do uh, a sort of makeup. And uh, I don't know if you follow uh, much of what he does, but he has a, an extraordinary catalog of great uh, blues and jazz come through uh, Fiendsville and uh, is a big supporter of uh, Milwaukee and uh, Southeastern Wisconsin music. But uh, his restaurant actually burned down and oh. uh, so they're, re they're rebuilding it. Um, so it's all the more reason that uh, it was really nice uh, to see uh, the community come together and everyone kind of helping each other out. Cool. So yeah, that's our, that's our big thing is to kind of show him some love for uh, the support he's given to uh, not only us, but uh, a huge plethora of some of my favorite local bands. So listeners, so they can know where let's kind of see where you're at as uh, time goes on. What, where are you on the web? So they can kind of f find out where you are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have like, you know, all the social medias, you know, have like a Twitter and an Instagram and a Facebook for uh, Professor Pinkerton's Irrelevant Orchestra. We also have uh, a website that we relaunched uh, around December when we we're doing the Christmas Caravan, which is profpinkerton.com, P-R-O-F Pinkerton.com. Uh, and we're going to be making a lot more updates there. Um, been doing a lot of regular blog updates of just you know, the kind of day-to-day -day behind the scenes. Like we have a warehouse that we do rehearsal at that we like broke into a big vintage safe and, you know, showed people like what was inside the safe or, you know, <laughs> things like this. Just just trying to find fun, whimsical ways to keep people engaged. Uh, like a lot of people, I'm trying to step away from being solely dependent on uh, social media. The constant shifting and changing of the algorithm is not really... Uh, it doesn't have little, the little guy like you or me in mind. There's a right. lot of uh, attempts to monetize through 
forcing people to pay for advertising for the engagement they used to have naturally last year, you know? And uh, we just, frankly, uh, pouring all of our money into the arts. So we're not uh, in a position to, uh, to get skimmed off the top by all the billionaires in Silicon Valley. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, um, like I said earlier, thank you so much for being on the Wisconsin Music Podcast. It was a great interview, and I definitely want to check you guys out once uh, everything starts getting a little bit closer to seeing live bands again. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to. I always like meeting new Barry players, so uh, hopefully uh, we'll throw you in the rotation someday. Uh, <laughs> okay, you know, okay. tri- trial under fire. There you go. There you go. Cool. Well, you have a good night, and we'll see you hopefully sooner than later. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. You too. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Pinkerton. Always some great music out there happening in Wisconsin, so make sure you go to their website and check them out. All the information is in the show details. So just check out the show details for any links to Pinkerton's Irrelevant Orchestra, Diamond Dave Photography, and ZTF Studio. Don't forget we have our Friday Music Showcase. If you're interested in being on the Friday Music Showcase, please email wisconsinmusicpodcast at gmail.com. In the subject, type in Friday Music Showcase. And in the email itself, send two songs, a little bio about yourself, and the stories behind each song. Also, send me your social links as well. Don't forget, you can also be on the Monday podcast. Sign up on the website at wisconsinmusicpodcast.com. Fill out the guest request form. And then after you hit submit, check your email. It might actually land in your junk or spam folder, but there should be an email there asking for more information on being on the Monday podcast. I'd like to thank Nate Wyckoff for creating the music for the Wisconsin Music Podcast and to Dean Bundy for our great voiceover in the beginning and intro. Thanks to Jacob at CW Hip Hop for syndicating our podcast every Monday at 4 p.m. at CWHipHop.com. Also, ZTF Studio Recording and Mixing Services, specializing in singles, demos, EPs, and LP projects for the last 20 years in southeastern Wisconsin, doing jazz, rock, funk, country, indie, and more. For more information, check out ztfstudio.com. Once again, that's ztfstudio.com. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you on Friday for the Friday Music Showcase. On the record, the last track, we did a version of the the song High Society, and it has a sort of an old-timey radio announcer talkover that tells you about the personnel and does the thank you list. And uh, so it's uh, specifically designed for that purpose. Ah, thank you for joining Professor Pinkerton's Irrelevant Orchestra and our adventures through hot jazz music. On the slide trombone this evening, we got Mr. Jay Ellison. And on the reeds, well, that's Mr. Troy Leisman and Andrew Spadafora. Clapping the upright bass, it's everyone's favorite semi-Canadian, Gavin Hardy. Providing only the finest of clinks and clanks, we got Paul Westfall and John Carr on the drums. My name is Professor Pinkerton, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Special guest, coming at you from New Orleans. We got Miss Chloe Sayaranto and her fine clarinetery. The husband and wife, two for one special, strumming the guitar, Molly Reeves and Mayhem Zabel. From Chicago, Illinois, hot jazz virtuoso, Mr. Andy Shum on piano and cornet. 
this fateful day was documented live, straight to tape in a single sitting with Danny down in Milwaukee's very own National Recording Studio, featuring her original artwork on the cover from Stinky Gollum. We'd like to extend a heartfelt thank you for years of support to Bill States and Ariel Olsen down at the Miramar Theater. Bob Weiss and the staff down at Shakers, Dead Man's Carnival crew, past and present, with extra credit to Gypsy Jeff Marsh, Michelle Hackett, Indigo, and Andrew Butler, as well as the many musicians who've been a part of this band over the years, including, but not limited to, Mary Rogers, Anna Brink, Nick Lang, Michael Ritter, Kevin Christensen, Aiden White, Andrew Koenig, Joe McEvick, Jason Spada, Carl Storniolo, Alan Stewart, Kenny Riker, Scott Mazenka, Ben Hogan, Dan Kaplan, John Sparrow, Ian Stewart, Greg Kramer, Brett Westfall, Jim Citron, Misha Sigfield, Fred Edwardson, Andy Pagel, Mark Hembray, Omar Phillips, Chris Clankart, David Smith, Steve Cohen, Peter Roller, David Boland, Chad Canfield, Guy Florentini, Nick Bundana, Peyton Lenshow, Tom Schwartz, Stop the Bob Saint, Westkin, my Northside nemesis, Joe Sage. And of course, thank you to you for listening. I can't believe we made it this far. This relationship's getting serious.